So we're going to read the next part of John chapter 5. This, there are passages in John that are um, stories, and they're um, straightforward, if you like. Well, or they're big dramatic stories, the turning of water into wine, Jesus meeting the woman at the well, Jesus healing the man at the pool of Bethesda, and so on. And then in between, there are the, the, the kind of narrative passages that explain, and they can be um, a little tougher. Uh, and we're not going to skip them and just go to the kind of story. So we're reading our way through John's gospel. So we're going to read um, from Matthew 5, 31 to 47. Um, Hopefully that will pop up in just a wee minute. I think I forgot to give you the reading, so Anna's on it. Yeah, there we go. Good, okay. If you want to follow in a paper Bible, uh, there's some on the uh, tables here at the sides, down at the front. So the context for this reading is that Jesus has healed a man who had been an invalid for 38 years who had been laid with a bunch of other invalids at the pool of Bethesda. They had all been waiting day after day in vain for, uh, because there was a, 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 a legend, perhaps founded in some truth way back, but there was a, a legend that every now and then an angel, angel came down and stirred the waters, first went into the waters after the pool was stirred, would uh, be healed. And uh, Jesus comes along and uh, just tells the man to get up and take up his mat and walk. And this was a Sabbath day, so there were Jewish leaders, elders, um, who were uh, incensed. They missed the miracle and uh, the sign that pointed to uh, the power of God at work in Jesus, and instead they, they just focused on the little, uh, the, the little nitpicking thing, uh, which was the fact that Jesus had told the man to carry his mat on the Sabbath day. And so this uh, leads into the narrative, and we looked at it, uh, half of it last week. We're going to look at uh, the other half this week, where Jesus quite blatantly, and in their ears quite offensively, um, begins to tell them that uh, He and the Father are one, that He is the Son, and the Son only does the works that He sees the Father doing. The Father's always working, and in uh, Jewish theology, they understood that God worked seven days a week. Yes, in creation, He created for six days and rested on the seventh, but it was an understanding that God's always at work, and we are expecting and relying that even though for us this is a Sabbath day as Christians, we don't come here thinking, oh, what a shame. We came to worship God and sing songs to Him, but He's having His day off. He won't hear. So our expectation is that God sustains all things all day, all the time, and doesn't have a holiday in that sense. And so Jesus was um, pointing out the close connection between Father and Son, uh, between the God who works every day and therefore Jesus can do work on the Sabbath because He and the Father are one. That the Father does great works, but the Son will do greater works. That just as uh, the Father has power over death and life, so Jesus has power over life and death. And so there's just Jesus making this strong connection to say who He is. And of course, it just riled them all the more. So, we come on to verse 31 then. Finally get to the actual reading. If I testify about myself, 
My testimony is not true. There is another who testifies in my favor, and I know that his testimony about me is true. You have sent to John, and he has testified to the truth. Not that I accept human testimony, but I mention it that you may be saved. John was a lamp that burned and gave light, and you chose for a time to enjoy his light. I have testimony weightier than that of John. For the works that the Father has given me to finish, the very works that I am doing testify that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me has himself testified concerning me. You have never heard his voice nor seen his form, nor does his word dwell in you, for you do not believe the one he sent. You study the Scriptures diligently, because you think that in them you have eternal life. These are the very Scriptures that testify about me, yet you refuse to come to me to have life. I do not accept glory from human beings, but I know you. I know that you do not have the love of God in your hearts. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not accept me. But if someone else comes in his own name, you will accept him. How can you believe? since you accept glory from one another, but do not seek the glory that comes from the only God. But do not think I will accuse you before the Father. Your accuser is Moses, on whom your hopes are set. If you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. But since you do not believe what he wrote, how are you going to believe what I say? Amen. May God bless His Word to us today. I was um, reminded when I was reading this passage about something. I've, I've referenced it before in Cafe Church, I know, but you weren't all here. Um, something which a friend of mine who was doing counseling training learned, which has a strange name, the, the, the Johari Window. Do you remember me telling you about that before? Maybe not. But the Johari window um, is, if you can imagine, a little square with four boxes. And then uh, up one side is what you see. And along the bottom is what other people see. And the Johari window basically says that if you imagine these four squares as an intersection, there's what I see and what you can see about me. And then there are parts of us that I can see and you cannot see about me, things that I know that you don't know, that are hidden and and known only to me. And then there's the flip side of that. There's what you can see about me and I can't see because we all have blind spots and we we think we present a certain way. Ollie, who works in the cafe, was, was uh, mocking the way I rock back and forward on my feet and bend my knees when I'm preaching. And it was only when he did that I realized that I did it. And I haven't been able to stop since. So, you know, now that I've told you, you won't see anything else. Or even the word like. I hadn't realized how often I put the word like into my speech. Like, you know, like. Like, like, and it takes sometimes other people to point out your 
weird mannerisms and strange ways of speaking and behaving before you can actually get any insight into yourself. So we need other people to hold up a mirror to ourselves. And then, of course, there's the fourth quadrant. There's what you can't see and what I can't see. There's the stuff that only God can see. The stuff that is uh, perhaps hidden to my knowledge or my memory or my self-consciousness, and you didn't even know it was there at all. And so we are a, a cocktail of all of these things. What everyone can see and is aware of, what I see and you don't, what you see and I don't, and what neither of us sees, but only God can see. And there's a little element about that, if you like, in, in the opening part of this passage where Jesus says, if I testify about myself, my testimony is not true. And so Jesus starts off by saying, what I say about me, what I say about me is just what I say about me. It's what I think. And all of you can say things about yourself. The last time you wrote a CV, or if you've never written a CV, you will write a CV, and you will be forced to say things about yourself. You'll try and cherry-pick the best bits of your experience and of who you are, your personality, to make you uh, an attractive candidate for that job that you're going for or that master's program you want to get on or, or whatever it happens to be. And so you will say things about yourself. And I know because I'm long enough in the tooth to know that what everybody says in their CV about their experience and skills ain't necessarily so. I once had a very bad experience with somebody who talked a really good game, who beat a field of seven applicants for a, a management post that me and some others were recruiting for in, in my last uh, place. And, and this guy was a standout candidate. Uh, we had to interview him one day before just because of timing and schedule, so we interviewed him. And then the next day, we interviewed six other people. Now, that's you know, if you're the one being interviewed, you don't want to be the person who got interviewed on their own the day before, because then there's six other people, and it's another day, and they're fresher in the minds of the interviewing panel. So that puts you at a real disadvantage. Well, this guy was so standout, he got the job, even though uh, he had come the day before, and he was awful. He was awful. He didn't do any of the things that he said he had experience of doing or was enthusiastic about doing. So his testimony about himself was not true. And so that's why, I mean, I'm involved in the Church of Scotland recruitment process, and every time uh, I have to direct uh, an assessment conference, there are generally eight applicants for ministry who are uh, being uh, interviewed and going through exercises and all the rest of it. And they go through a 24-hour residential interview, and that's the end of a process of, of uh, six to nine months of discernment with a local mentor and a presbytery assessor. And then they have to go to something called a local review to see if they're ready to go to national assessment. I know it's terribly boring, but, you know, you just have to listen to it. I have to do it. So by the time this person comes to a national assessment conference, there are so many bits of paper so for every one, generally speaking, there are about 10 to 12 reports for each one. And because I'm, if I'm directing the conference, that means I have to read all eight of them, 
which means if there's 12 bits of paper or 12 reports, that's 96 reports that I have to read in preparation for a conference. It's no fun, I tell you. And in amongst that, you've got what the person says about themselves. But of course, you have to set against that what other people say about the person. And of course, it doesn't always match up. Because we always want to present ourselves in glowing colors. Like you present yourselves here today in the way that you want people to see you as best you can with the limit of of, uh, what God's given you and the resources that are at your disposal. You present your best self. We all do. But of course, that's not the truth of who we are. And there's a whole other self that none of us wants anyone to see, right? And so Jesus' testimony about himself, he knew was not enough. But actually, whose testimony did he care about? Because there were lots of people forming opinions about Jesus. And some of them were good and positive. The man who'd been healed at the pool of Bethesda didn't really know who Jesus was. Jesus found him later on in the crowds. They came and asked the man, who was it that told you to pick up your mat? He said, I don't know. I don't know who the guy was. Some random guy came and told me to get up and something happened and I did. But of course, his story after that, his testimony was that Jesus was the one who after 38 years of empty promises and and local myths about water stirring and offers of help to get in the water, he was the one who came up with the goods. And so he had good things, no doubt, to say about Jesus. But the elders, of course, who had found out Jesus, told them that he should carry his mat on the Sabbath, had bad things to say about Jesus. The world is full of people with opinions about Jesus. He's a very controversial figure. That in itself I find absolutely fascinating. I actually find it quite fascinating that almost all the major religions and and cults and sects and so on that are around all have something to say about Jesus. Nobody quite likes to cut him out, except probably the Jewish faith. But the Muslims believe that Jesus was a prophet. The Mormons believe that Jesus was the first one to become a god, but you can all become gods. The Jehovah's Witnesses believe that Jesus was a god, but not the god, not God. Buddhism believes that Jesus was a wise wise teacher. He's there all over the place. Everyone has an opinion. If we were to walk out onto those streets and ask people, who do you say Jesus is? We would get a whole variety of responses. And some people who perhaps have no commitment to Jesus as a Christian would still say, son of God, maybe, I don't know. Wise teacher, good man. And if I was to do a little survey around your family and your friends, the people that knew you growing up, the people that you work with, and said, what's Hannah like? I should just pick on you, Hannah, because you're in the front. I shouldn't do that, actually. I should pick on some in the back, because that's what puts people off sitting in the front. Yeah, let's just do Zubin instead. So if I was to go to Zubin's family and friends and network and contacts and all the rest of it and say, you know, what's Zubin like? Just it would depend who I asked, right? It would depend who I asked. I could maybe find some people that he didn't get on with at school that would have some horrible things to say about them. 
I could probably find people that loved him to bits, his best friends. Who are we? Are we just the amalgam of what other people say we are? Because Jesus was not prepared to let that be what defined who he was. There is another who testifies in my favor, and I know that his testimony about me is true. That is where Jesus found his anchor and his peace, his certainty and his strength. That is where Jesus found the the equilibrium, if you like, the serenity. I don't like using these words because they all seem so wishy-washy. But the groundedness and the confidence to know who he was because he took his opinion of who he was from no one and nowhere else other than the Father. He was not at the mercy of what people said. He did not seek the glory or the approval that comes from other people. He did not need an Instagram account to give him lots of likes or a Facebook page or any of the other gazillion social media opportunities there are for us to crave and receive the kind of dopamine surge that you get when you get a few likes on a photograph or a comment or whatever. So Jesus said of the people, well, you sent to John and he's testified to the truth. Not that I accept human testimony, but I mention it that you may be saved. John was a lamp that burned and gave light and you chose for a time to enjoy his light. You have sat around and shared testimonies like John. And John's testimony in Jesus' view was more believable. Why? Because John was a prophet. John was a prophet. John came to fulfill Isaiah. See, there you go. I can't help myself. He came and fulfilled the words in Isaiah 40 about preparing a way for the Lord. And so what he spoke and lived and declared was that he was the forerunner, speaking the words that God had given him to speak. And so we are our most credible and reliable selves when we are speaking and living out of our identity in Jesus, out of the place where we know and believe that we are loved and known and adopted by the Father as daughters and sons, and where we speak and live and our words and our living flow out of the place, flow out of the place of what God is saying and has said to us. And of course, the other side is that where our words and our living do not flow out of what God has taught us and shown us and given us in His Word, what He's uh, set before us in Jesus as an example of the servant king, where we do not model the humility of, a, of, a, of, a, of a, a Savior who washed His disciples' feet, where we do not allow the Spirit to produce His fruit in our lives, 
then we become, in a sense, like false witnesses, where we say one thing, but other things are seen in our lives. And I suppose a little bit back to that uh, Johari window thing. It's what I see and what you see. But then there's what you see and I do not see, which is the ways in which my conduct, my speaking, my reactions fall short of what God has called me to. Jesus sought to be utterly authentic and consistent in terms of being the son of his father, of letting the father be seen in and through his life. And it wasn't that he tried really hard to do it, to please or impress his father. He did it out of the place of knowing that he was the son. He did it out of the place of being and belonging the son of his father, of knowing that he was loved and that there was nothing that this world or anything else had to offer that was better than that intimate relationship with the father, the certainty of who he was, and the determination to fulfill the father's mission. And so there's what I say, but Jesus said, I'm not relying on that. I'm relying on what God says. If you like, he says, you can think about what John said. But he wouldn't rely on human testimony. Not that I accept human testimony, because as we all know, human testimony is based on a whole manner of unreliable things. Human testimony can be based on prejudice. I don't like you, so I'll say this. It can be based on limited knowledge. I didn't know, but I said it anyway. It can be based on limited understanding. Well, I thought I knew, but clearly there were some facts that were not at my disposal. Or human testimony can just be based out of self-interest. Well, if I say that, then I'll get that, and he'll get or she'll get that. We're fickle creatures, right? Pursuing an agenda. And left to ourselves, we will scrap and scrape and scrabble. And in our world, which has become and becoming increasingly polarized, and social media has a big part to play in that. It's much easier. It's much easier to say divisive things from the safety of a device or a screen than it is to confront someone, look them in the eye, and say the same thing. And of course, we're steadily realizing the extent to which the algorithms embedded in Facebook and Instagram and all these other things give us more of what we already think in order to polarize the debate. Because the more the debate is polarized, then the more people get engaged, the more they come back, the more the advertising revenue goes up. It's a scary thing, right? Just when we thought that social media provided an information revolution that was uh, a free, open platform. But self-interest is everywhere in our world, except in Jesus. 
who has the Father's interests. And the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit have your best interests at heart. In this world, said Jesus, you will have trouble. (laughs) But take heart. I've overcome the world. In this world, you will ricochet, if you allow yourself to, between other people's opinions and statements. In this world, you will find yourself at the mercy of what other people have said about you, whether they like or don't like you, and your insecurities may be deepened or bred by the things that other people say or don't say, like or don't like. I do not accept glory from human beings, said Jesus. His testimony came from the works that the Father had given him to finish, but the Father testified, and you have not heard his voice or seen his form, nor does his word dwell in you, for you do not believe the one he sent. The testimony of God comes by believing in the one that he has sent, by believing in the one that he sent. And by believing in the one that he sent, says Jesus, then you will, as it were, get to hear his voice and see his form, and his word will dwell in you. I don't know or understand how it happens. And maybe when you were sharing your stories around the table, maybe there was a sense in which you can remember the point where by believing in Jesus, something changed. Everything changed, actually. He says, you study the Scriptures diligently, he accuses these Jewish leaders, because you think that in them you have eternal life. And I've met people, and I've probably been that person, They were so intent on studying the Scriptures and making an idol of the Word. Now, please hear me correctly. It's important to know God's Word. But I I read a very interesting um, kind of metaphor or image of this where somebody said, you know, sometimes people's approach to reading the Scriptures is a bit like going into a restaurant and they give you the menu. And it might be a really nice menu. You know, it might be like a posh one and you know this is going to cost you a bit. You know, it's a kind of heavy board menu, and it's maybe got the gold lettering on it, and and you don't understand half the words. Right. Help me out here, folks, because I'm going to, I've got to go to a conference thing, and they sent the menu in advance. Okay? So, I have been, apparently tomorrow evening, we are having Red Tractor Certified Chicken. What is that? What? Red Tractor Certified Oh, okay. Well, thank you for helping me out. Minimum standard. Oh, okay. (laughs) I'll take that up with them. I spoke to an expert. They said this is a minimum standard. What color would it have to be to be the maximum standard? Organic. Oh, okay. Right. Okay. Good. See? If you go to a restaurant and they put this really nice menu in front of you, And you see, that looks a really classy menu. Thank you. And you took your knife and fork and started eating the menu. They would think you were crazy. They would possibly ask you to leave the restaurant. Because the menu is there to point you to the meal, right? The menu is there to tell you what's available. And you choose 
from the menu and you understand it and it leads to food and a meal. It's the point Jesus is making. You diligently study the Scriptures, but actually the Scriptures are to lead you to Jesus. The Scriptures are to lead you to Jesus. And you can do your daily devotions religiously, but if they don't lead you to Jesus, if it's just a tick box exercise so that you feel that you've done your daily devotions, you see, He wants a relationship with you. He wants a relationship with you. And so Jesus invites you to take the stance that He had He knew that the elders were setting their stall according to the Scriptures and the book of Moses, and they were going to get it right, and they were going to impress God with how right they had got it. And all the time, they missed the fact that the Scriptures that they devoured were pointing them to Jesus, to the one who would fulfill and do for them what they never could do perfectly or completely for themselves. That's why He said, Moses will be your judge. If you try and earn your way, if you try and get it completely right, if you try and impress God with your law-keeping and your rule-keeping, then you will stand and fall by your own rule-keeping. But instead, Jesus invites you and me to a different way. He invites us to the blessed relief of knowing that He fulfilled all of that for us. And yes, whilst He calls us to let our words and our deeds and our lives and our conduct be an echo and reflection of what we say we believe. At the end of the day, it's not other people's testimony that counts. It's what the Father says about you. And the Father says in Jesus and through the cross of Jesus and the grace of His forgiveness, He says to you, my dear child, my dear child, whom I love and gave myself for, in whom I delight. And He calls you to the place not of law-keeping, nor to the place of judgment of other people, but to the place of relationship, of finding that place of intimacy and approval through relationship in the Father, of allowing yourself to be free and freed from the judgments and the opinions and the testimonies of other people. And some of them might be quite profound in your life. And sometimes we can live out of lives that have been shaped and molded by the testimony, the verdict, the judgment, the opinion of other people. And the invitation of the Father is to be set free. The invitation of the gospel is to be set free. It's to know that whatever limiting, constraining, judgmental, critical words have made their way into your self-understanding, Jesus says, if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. My dear child. And out of that place, out of that place, it's the glory of of the Father that we seek and dwell in. And in this dog-eat-dog world, 
with all its uncertainties and anxieties, and I know I say this a lot, but it's why Jesus was able to say, take heart, I have overcome the world, because there was just as much anxiety and uncertainty going on in first century Israel as there is now, arguably, a lot more. And so, as you go into another week, you know what you can see and others can see. And you know what there is that only the Father can see. And you need to know and to believe the grace of God which covers the shortcomings that you keep well hidden. And the things that other people can see but you can't see that might lead them to a source of judgment or bring you into fear or anxiety about how you're perceived, leave them. Because you are loved and accepted in the Father because He's the one who can see the fourth box, what you can't see and what they can't see. And despite all of that, His love is perfect, and perfect love casts out fear. Let's pray together.